Thank you so much for that song. I was sitting there thinking if our children could just take those verses and really embrace those in their life, it would be life-changing for them. And it would be life-changing for us as adults if we would have those same verses in our own heart and life. Thank you so much for that and the practice and everything that went into all that. It was a rich, rich blessing. Special music is like cooking a meal. It takes hours sometimes to cook the meal, and then everybody eats it in ten minutes. My wife has often said that is so discouraging. But I don't know if she wants us eating for three hours either. So, But in any case, that's how special music is. We get to enjoy it in three or four minutes. But it was a long time in preparation for it. So we're very, very thankful for that. The book of Ephesians chapter 2. Our text for this morning is verses 4 through 7. But I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 of this chapter so that we can remind ourselves of the context of this. And then Lord willing, this afternoon we're going to be having the Lord's table. And then Dr. Valier is going to give about a 10 minute update or so. And then what I want to do is take this book and really I want to go through uh, chapter 1 through chapter 2 and verse 7 in about 5 or 10 minutes to prepare our hearts for that table. And so we'll just be immersed in this book all day long. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We've been learning that the state of all mankind is simply put here in Ephesians 2 in verse 1. All mankind are dead in trespasses and sins. And what we mean by that isn't that men and women and boys and girls aren't alive. It doesn't mean they can't make decisions or they don't have a will. The word dead means to be separated. For instance, when we die, our soul and spirit is separated from our body, and to be absent from our body is to be present with with the Lord for believers. But that's what we call dead. It's not annihilation or a cease of existence. All mankind being dead in trespasses and sins, meaning all mankind is not only separated from God, They are separated from the life of God, the very person of God. Death permeates every aspect of mankind. It permeates his will. His will is separated from God. His will is separated from the life of God. His feeling. His feeling is separated from God. His feelings are separated from the life of God. And his thoughts, the way he thinks, is also separated from God. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. Our thoughts are separated from God, and our thoughts are separated from the life of God. 
that's the way every believer's life and all of mankind apart from rebirth, that's the way as believers we once were. But now, in Christ, we have been made alive to God. We're no longer separated from God, nor are we separated from the life of God. As Henry Scougel wrote, what is salvation? The life of God in the soul of man. Death permeates everything, and the theological statement for this is total depravity. And that means that all mankind outside of Christ is unified against God. They are unified in the rejection of God. They have differences, but on this point, they're unified. It's like Herod and Pontius Pilate. Pilate and Herod were enemies. He sends Christ to Herod, and the Bible says that when Herod sent Christ back to Pilate, it says, and they became friends. Isn't that amazing? Unified in the rejection of God. And our former behavior, not only were we dead in trespasses and sins, verse 2, but our former behavior was according to the course of this age. We lived according to the desires of the age. We lived according to the mindset of the age. We lived according to the spirit of this age, the prince of the power of the air, noted verse 2, of the spirit that is what? Now working. Is it working now? It is working now. In who? In the sons of disobedience. All mankind are walking along the broad way of this age. And as I mentioned before, there might be differences in religion, there might be differences in philosophies, it doesn't mean that all mankind agrees on every jot and tittle of this life, but that's okay, the broad way accommodates all that, doesn't it? You can be on the right side of the broad way, you can be on the left side of the broad way, you can be walking down the middle of the broad way, but the point is, you're still on the broad way that leads to destruction. The needs and interest of this present age dominates or is Lord over mankind. And folks, what that means is, is that mankind, though they believe that they are free, and they believe that they are independent and self-sustaining, they are neither free nor independent. They are bound in trespasses and what? Sins. And the will of their Father, they will do. And that Father is the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. And folks, that means that prior to our salvation, not only were we walking along the broad way of this age, but our feelings, our pattern of thinking, the things that motivated us, were all within the framework of the broad way of this age. And folks, that is why you and I need to be careful as believers. First of all, we do not get saved and become perfect, do we? There's still a process of growth. Our feelings, the way we think, the things we read of this world, the things that motivate us that are of this age, we need to count it as suspicious. The most mature of us need to count it as suspicious. We must learn to think God's thoughts after Him and allow those thoughts, please hear me, allow those words that mindset of God to determine the way we feel about things and our will about things. 
It's the Word of God that molds all that. It doesn't mold our feelings and then changes the way we think. No, we are to renew our what? Minds. And folks, Paul's going to go on in this book, in Ephesians 4 verse 17, is that this former way of life, we are not to walk any longer therein. He says in verse 17 of chapter 4, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord. In other words, this just isn't Paul saying this. This just isn't a mature believer saying this. Paul's like an oath with this. His words are God-breathed, aren't they? But he says, now look, I'm telling you, this is of the Lord himself also. It heightens the strength of what he's about to say. This I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And he goes on. And folks, we learned last Lord's Day that any teaching of grace that instructs us to walk in a manner according to the course of this world is not biblical grace. Biblical grace teaches us to deny ungodliness, doesn't it? It doesn't teach us how to accommodate it. It doesn't teach us how to like put it to our use. It teaches us to deny it. And if the church of Jesus Christ would get back to walking in the grace of Christ, we would see a movement in our churches. Now folks, having said all that, we are by nature, look at verse 3, we are by our very nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And the reason why he says that is he says in verse 1, he says, and you were dead. Verse 2, and you formerly walked. He's talking about Gentiles there. This is the way Gentile people walked. And then he says in verse 3, among them, among the Gentiles, we too, meaning who? Not the Gentile, but the the Jews. We too, even the Jews, formerly lived in the lust of their flesh. And folks, we too, by nature, just as Gentiles, were children of wrath, even as the rest of mankind. Now that surprises a lot of people. In fact, the media itself will ask sometimes, they'll ask someone like a religious figure that's on a talk program, they'll ask, well, what about the Jew? Paul answers that question. What about the Jew? Children of wrath, even as the Gentiles are. Now folks, what is the solution to all this? In other words, brethren, if our feelings and our pattern of thinking and the things that energize us are all under the lordship of the spirit of this age, that spirit that is now working in children of disobedience, that was our stance toward God. Is there any hope for us? And the answer to that is given to us in verse 4 in the first two words. Do you see those first two words? What does it say? But God. Everybody see that? In other words, the solution for us being saved isn't in ourselves. The solution for us growing in the grace of Christ isn't in ourselves. It's not inherent within us. The solution to our being declared righteous before God is not inherent within us. A sinner can reform his ways. He can say to him or herself, you know what, I'm on the left side of the broad road, that's kind of bumpy, 
I want to move toward the middle, turn over a new leaf, give up this, give up that, start doing this. They're still on the broad way. What happened? <clears throat> God intervened. The creator of the heaven and the earth intervened for us. Now folks, that is amazing that He would do that. Would He have been just to throw all of creation into hell? Yes or no? Yes. He didn't sin against us. We sinned against Him. He told Adam, who is the head of all the human race, if you partake of this tree, <clears throat> in dying you shall die. Death was, is our destiny apart from Christ. And that would have been entirely just. But God... Folks, we were dead to God. We were dead to God. God had to do something, amen? If I go to a corpse and I'm there at that funeral, can I talk to the corpse? Yes or no? Yeah, I can talk to the corpse. Can the corpse hear me? No? I can say, hey, let's go play basketball. Is the corpse responding? No. Dead. We were dead in trespasses and sins. And folks, I want you to note the past tense of what I'm saying. <clears throat> believers were dead. It's not that believers are still dead. Believers are no longer dead. <clears throat> look down in the passage. Look in the middle of verse 5. <clears throat> Made us what? Alive. Is that not a different state? God Himself. We had no ability to make ourselves alive. None. We were blind to the glory of the knowledge of the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We were deaf to hear His words. How in the world can we be delivered? How in the world can we live again? Answer, but God. God Himself did something. And folks, what God Himself did, look at verse 4, <clears throat> but God, being rich in mercy, Folks, that's what it took in the heart of God. It wasn't God being rich in justice. If He would have been rich in justice, we would have died in our sins. God being rich in mercy. God the Father, as it were, reached into His infinite wealth of mercy. He showed His goodness to someone else in need. He went about to rescue dead ones. People dead in trespasses and sins. And folks, this truth that I'm giving to you is the thing that you and I need to understand preeminently about God in order to be saved. What is that? That God can give life to people who are dead. Man doesn't believe that. To man, when you die, you're annihilated. When you die, you're absorbed into the ethos of the universe. When you die, you just cease to be. They have no hope. All they have is this few measly years of life, and then it's it. How depressing. How empty. 
How vain, how foolish, how darkened is lost man's imaginations about God. Folks, it is God who gives life to the dead and it is God who calls those things into being that are not. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 4. I just quoted it for you, but I want you to see it with your own eyes. This is exactly what Abraham had to understand about God for him to be justified by faith. When God brought him out and He told him to look at all the stars and so shall his seed be, and it says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him for righteousness. Well, what did Abraham believe concerning God? Romans 4 verse 17 tells us. It says, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. Now look at this. In the presence of Him whom He believed. Who was the presence of Him whom He believed? He believed God, right? What did He believe about God? Who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Those are the two things that Abraham had to believe about God And not only did he have to believe them about God, he had to believe that God had the ability to do it. And folks, 15 years later, that belief was put on trial when he took Isaac up to the mount to offer him in sacrifice. That child of promise. Here's Abraham. God says, take him up there and slay your son, your beloved son, the one that I gave you, the promised seed. Abraham's in agony. What is he going to believe? This is what he says, Hebrews chapter 11. He came to the conclusion that the only way that God could fulfill who he is is that when I put that knife into my son, that God was going to raise my son from the dead. Does everybody hear that? That's truth being lived out. It's exactly what Paul says. We were, we were pressed down beyond measure. We thought we were going to die. But we trusted in God who raises people from the dead. That's the gospel. Right? Didn't Jesus have to believe that? He said, my Father's given me the commandment. He's given me the ability to lay down my life. He's given me the authority to take my life up again. Christ had to believe that God can raise the dead. And you and I have to believe that God can raise the dead. Now folks, here he's not talking about, in Ephesians chapter 2, here he's not talking about raising our bodies from the dead. That's amazing in and of itself. But the most amazing thing is that he raised up our soul and spirit from the dead. We were dead in trespasses and sins. Yet in the gospel, we see God the Father raising up His only begotten Son from the dead. And we walk away from that saying this, you know what? God can raise and give life to people that are dead. I'm dead in sin. I'm a sinner. I'm evil. I'm separated from God. What's my hope? God. That's our hope. Being rich in mercy. Seeing our need. And folks, I don't know if you've ever come across people who say this. They'll say, you know what? I've read my Bible. I've looked at my New Testament. The things God's commanded me to do, I can't do! Yes, He calls into being those things that are not. You're saying to yourself, I'm not this way. God says, by my word, you will be this way. He gives life. And he calls those things that are not. We're dead in trespasses and sins. No fruit of the Spirit. No life of God. And he says to us, Rise, O sleeper from the dead. And we live. Hallelujah for that. Is that not being rich in mercy? And folks, we could not please God 
We were not walking with God. We could do nothing to earn our justification. We could do nothing to earn our way to heaven. We could do nothing to make ourselves like His Son. We could do absolutely zero. No health in us from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet full of sores and cancers and oozing, Isaiah says. It was repulsive who we are. And God the Father loved us. He was rich in mercy. Now folks, here's what opened up that fountain of mercy. Look at it again, verse 4. God being rich in mercy. Why? Because, everybody say that word, because of His great love with which He loved who? Us. Everybody see that? What opened up the fountain of mercy in the heart of God was His overwhelming, infinite, surpassing greatness of His love. And folks, this is exactly what He mentions here. Go back to Ephesians 1. We tend to forget the working out of the mystery of His will. Look down in verse 4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Note what's next. In love He did these things. Paul's still talking about this grace that we went through in chapter 1. God the Father loved us with this huge, surpassing, great love. Now here's what makes it amazing beyond amazing. He loved us when we were the most unlovable. Now that's not going to have an impact on you unless you really meditate on total depravity and the way we were before God saved us. Folks, he said, God being rich in mercy, out of the wealth of his mercy, how could he do that? Because of his great love with which he loved us, like this, even when we were dead in our transgressions. We were most unlovable. God would speak to Israel through the prophets, and he would tell that nation, that they were like an aborted baby on the side of the road. Bloody. Gross. Dirty. And God finds them, finds that baby on the side of the road. And instead of being repulsed by what He sees, He exhibits His great love toward that baby. And He takes that baby and that baby lives. And the Bible says that God clothed that nation with the finest garbs of clothing. He gave them the Word of God, didn't He? He gave them the temple, didn't He? He gave them the services, didn't He? His own presence resided in that mosaic temple. Isn't that amazing? God dwelling with fallen man. And you were unlovable. I know your grandparents said that you are the most lovable granddaughter or grandson they've ever had. That's not God's position. Frank Jones was the most unlovable being on the face of the earth. Everything about my life was repulsive to God. If we could see mankind like God sees mankind, it probably would cause us to vomit in the repugnancy and the aroma and the stench of death throughout all this globe. But He was rich in mercy. Everybody hear that? Because of His great love wherewith He loved us. And folks, what He did 
is so amazing, it is beyond comprehension. Look at verse 6. Excuse me, verse 5. He made us alive. He raised us up, verse 6. He seated us. Everybody see those verbs. Even we who were dead, God the Father made alive with Christ. He made us alive with Christ. He raised us up with Christ. He seated us with Christ. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, God did this. And folks, I just want to state it very plainly. You and I don't have this type of love. Our love can be so condemnatory. We see a lost person engaged in the grossest of sin. And there ought to be a repugnancy that comes up in our heart. But with that repugnancy, there ought to arise mercy. Is everybody hearing me? Because that's the heart of God. When we see someone commit things, when we see them do the exact opposite of what we've exhorted them to do, when we see them reject God, reject our testimony, reject the Word of God, that is repulsive. That's the way we once were. But what did God do? Rich in mercy. He took action on our behalf. Now please follow this. When? When did God do this? If I was to say to you, did you get saved on a Monday, Monday? Did you get saved on a Tuesday, Tuesday? (laughs) Wednesday? The truth of the matter is, is that God did this at the same historical moment Christ died and rose again. Look at what it says. Look at verse 5. He made us alive together. Everybody see that? Together with who? Christ. Verse 6. He raised us up With who? With Him. He seated us with who? Him. In the heavenly places. Where? In Christ Jesus. Everybody see that? And folks, this is exactly why Paul prays for the people of God to understand the surpassing greatness of God the Father's power toward us who believe. Look back in chapter 1. Look at verse 19. Paul's praying this for the church at Ephesus that those believers would understand the greatness of this power. And he says in verse 19, all of these things are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might. Verse 20. Which He brought about in who? Christ. When? When He raised Him from the dead. When? And seated Him at His right hand in the heavenlies. Everybody see that? That's where the surpassing greatness of His power, that's where all of this was accomplished. Not only was it settled before the foundation of the world, 
but it was brought to pass in the person of Jesus Christ at a historical moment some 2,000 years ago. And folks, if you would really come to grips with that, you would have no problem about honoring the Lord's Day. (laughs) His surpassing greatness of His power. What power? To bring about the mystery of His will. What was that? The summing up of all things in, in Christ. And that when Christ died, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. In fact, from a human perspective, you and I were not even leaving, living, right? But folks, we were in Adam. And this is the second Adam. God's not remodeling the first Adam. The first Adam is under just condemnation. That's why you and I have to be born again. We have to be born again in Christ. Folks, Christ died. You agree with that? Believers died. Christ was buried. Believers were buried. Christ was raised from the dead. Believers were raised up with Him. Christ was seated in the heavenlies. Believers are seated with Him in the heavenlies. And folks, the exciting thing about all of this happening at that historical moment and Jesus Christ saying, it is, it's finished, means that my assurance of my salvation is 110% based on the gospel. It's what Christ did to fulfill the mystery of His will on our behalf. It's about what He did. It's about who He is. It's about where He is. It's about what He's doing. We're in the second Adam, those of us who are believers. Now I want to ask you, do you believe that Jesus Christ died? Do you believe that? Yes or no? Do you believe that He was buried? Do you believe He was raised from the dead? Do you believe that He's seated right now in heavenly places? The fact He is presently seated, the fact that He was previously raised from the dead is my guarantee that I too will be with Him when I die. Because He's already there. And because He's there, I'm there. Everybody hear that? You're going to need that on your deathbed. Because, folks, on your deathbed, here's what your sin nature is going to do. It's going to bring up, you will be amazed at the bucket list that your sin nature has about all your sins. And if you're trusting what I'm doing, meaning, you know, I did this, and I exerted this, and I did all this, and you're not just saying to yourself, by the grace of God, I am what I am, that it's His work and His merit that gives me those guarantees, you will not die happy. You will die scratching and grabbing for the things of this world rather than reaching forth to being with Him. Folks, that which is true for Christ is and shall be true for every believer. Guaranteed. We could word it this way. As I live, saith the Lord, this will be. The wholeness of God is behind this. Our assurance, our walk, 
Our justification, our sanctification is not inherent within us. It's not based on our works. It is based on the work of Christ in and through us. Period. All in all. And isn't it amazing that lost people don't like that? <laughs> lost people don't like that. When I got saved, I thought everybody would embrace the gospel. I thought this was the most fantastic news that I could be saved by grace apart from human works. I thought that's wonderful. And I would tell people and they would just rebut it. They would argue against it. They would say I'm a good person. I mean, they would do everything they could to get out of it. Isn't that amazing? But that's because they are dead in trespasses and sins. Folks, what would you say to the riches of this mercy? What would a believer say if we, you and I are in tune with God? What would we say to all this? Here's what we would say. Look in chapter 2. <clears throat> Look at verse 5. Do you see the parentheses? Folks, what you would say is this. By grace I have been saved. Everybody see that? Here's what you would say in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. That's what you would say. That's what, if you're really understanding what God is doing, now He's not talking about us, He's not talking about our responsibility, right? He's talking about what God is doing on our behalf. But God. If you and I really understood this, there would be a swelling up in our souls of thanksgiving. There would be swelling up in our souls praise. Folks, what would be swelling up in us is exactly what Paul's already talked about, that the end of everything in life is this to the praise of the glory of His grace. Does everybody hear that? In other words, the end of everything with God is that all of creation would praise Him for this grace that He and He alone has done on the behalf of humanity through His Son. That's the end of all things. So doesn't it make sense then that that's how we're saved? If that's the end of all things, then folks, it has to begin this way. By grace are you saved. Isn't that why he says in verse 6 of chapter 1, he says it again in verse 12, to the praise of His glory. He says it again in Ephesians 1 verse 14, to the praise of the glory of His grace. That's why he says in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace are you saved, verse 8, through faith, that not of yourselves. It is not inherent within men and women. It's by grace. Because if it was inherent within men and women, what would we do? We would boast. We would brag. And folks, you hear that every day, don't you? You know, if an athlete gets up <clears throat> and he wins the race and he's running around with number one and you know, he's got number one and I'm the greatest and all this kind of stuff and they interview him. And he talks about, oh, he says, I know this happened and I just believe in myself. I've trained hard. I deserve this. I just knew that if I trained hard that it would happen. Of course, he's not thinking about all the other people who train hard. You just sit there and shake your head. But isn't it refreshing when they interview an athlete? It is rare, but it does happen. And they say, you know what? My coaches had a lot to do with this. 
My parents had a lot to do with this. My, my physio, my physical therapist, all these people. I'm not here by myself winning this. I have tens and tens and hundreds of people that are all behind me trying to mold me into this person to become this type of runner or racer or cyclist. Isn't that refreshing when they thank people like that? But isn't that so rare? And folks, even Abraham could not <clears throat> contribute to his salvation. We read <clears throat> in Romans, listen to what the Bible says concerning Abraham. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as grace, but as what is due. Amen? Abraham was not declared righteous by works. No believer's ever been declared righteous by works. And it is God the Father's aim <clears throat> that we would praise Him and magnify that grace. That's why Paul says in verse 5, By grace you have been saved. So what has God done in the past? He worked all things in Christ. Raising Christ from the dead. Seating Him in the heavenlies. When that happened, all believers, that happened for them. The work of the cross did not make possible our salvation. It accomplished our salvation. What is God doing in the present? He is working through Christ, sealing believers in Christ and maturing us to praise the glory of His grace. That's what He wants for us. Now folks, here's a big question. I'm concluding with this. What is He going to do in the future? And that's given to us in verse 7. <clears throat> you see this. He raised us up with Him, seated us with Him in the heavenly places, verse 7, so that. Everybody see that word? So that. Here's His aim. We know His aim. But folks, that aim to the praise of the glory of His grace just wasn't when it was in Christ in the past. Not only is it just for us in the future, the church of the living God, we should be doing that. We sang hymns celebrating that grace. Amen? But folks, this is what God's going to do in the future. Look at what it says so that in the ages to come. What is God going to do in and through Christ toward us in the ages? Note the plural. It's not just the age to come. It's the ages that are out there to come. How long do those ages go? Forever. That in the ages to come, God the Father would show the surpassing riches of His what? Grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, folks, what God is going to do in the ages, and we don't know the details of this, but I can't wait. What God is going to do is that He manifested His grace in Christ. When Christ died, when He was raised, when He was seated. God is working now in the present to fulfill or to bring to pass that which has already been accomplished in the lives of believing people. So that when we, when we get to glory, when we go to that heavenly city of Jerusalem, when there's new heavens and new earth, 
What he's going to be continually doing is manifesting the goodness of his grace toward us in Jesus Christ. So folks, when we look back at the gospel, we say, hallelujah! Look at the grace, him being rich in mercy. When we see that his spirit working in our life, hallelujah! By the grace of God, I am what I am. What I am. And in the future, all I'm going to be doing is seeing more and more evidences of His grace toward us through Jesus Christ so that forever and for all eternity there will be a creation and a people just like His Son that will always say to the praise of the glory of His grace. In the new heaven and new earth, there will be absolutely forever no human boasting. And you may be disappointed in that, but I'm not. <laughs> I can't imagine a place where no human pride is. Can you? We won't be running around saying we're number one. We won't be talking around that, well, look at what I did. I beat you. I put you in the dust. I earn more than you. We're just going to magnify His grace for whatever measure of goodness He gives us forever and ever. In other words, everything will be summed up in Christ in order for everything to magnify God's amazing grace forever. Now let me ask you this. How much power would that take to accomplish everything I've told you in the historical moment of Christ's death, burial, resurrection? That is why we exalt in the hope of the glory of God because of what He did. And thanks be to God for that. What would it accomplish for every believer to be justified, to be sanctified? Don't you remember Romans 8? All those terms are past tense. When were they accomplished? For the Old Testament saint, they look forward to it being accomplished. For the New Testament saint, we're looking back and seeing it what? Accomplished. Why would any human being reject God's amazing grace? Let's pray.